I'd invite you to take your Bibles out and turn to Acts chapter 17, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts in the New Testament. Our hosts have some Bibles if you forgot yours or would like to borrow a hard copy today. If you don't have a Bible, this is our gift to you. Take it, it's yours. Our gift to you, we'd love for you to immerse yourself in reading the scriptures on a regular basis. If you forgot your Bible, just take this and turn it in on your way out. Acts chapter 17, where we've been for the past several weeks. My wife and I were part of a group of 20-some people who went to Israel in March, and our tour guide was Pastor Bob Federhoff from our sister church up in Worcester. And Pastor Bob used repetition and review quite effectively during our time there. It helped to impress the key themes and the key experiences of the trip in our minds. And after a few uh, questions, a few review sessions with Pastor Bob, our group could retell the experiences of our trip almost in our sleep. Bob, Bob learned the, the power of repetition and review, particularly in that holy land, from another uh, famous pastor uh, associated with our church, and I'm grateful for that. It reminded me those days there of how often we need to hear something again, sometimes even more than we need to hear something for the first time, something new. I'd like to begin our message this morning in a rather unusual, unique way, at least for me. I'd like to review several key aspects of our exploration in Acts 17 of the gospel and of culture. First, where have we been in the first few weeks in May? We'll call those our building blocks. Second, how do we summarize the gospel? Call that our talking points, our elevator speech. And third, how do we gauge our effectiveness as gospel witnesses? Call that personal assessment. Actually, the beginning part of our message this morning is going to be different than beforehand. A little longer introduction as we understand why Paul said what he did in Acts chapter 17. First, let's review where we've been. At the beginning of May, uh, Florent Varac, a Frenchman was with us, challenged us about counterfeit gods. To understand the counterfeit gods that people have and to sabotage them so that people can understand the one true God. Week number two, we saw how Paul, the Apostle Paul, was adaptable with his methods. He was able to speak to a variety of people, but he was persistent in emphasizing the person, the message of Jesus. Week three, we saw in Athens that they were full of diverse worldviews. And that's true in our day today. And we saw how Paul introduced what to them was a foreign gospel to address the curiosity and the needs that they had. And then finally, week four, last week, we observed the very first point in Paul's public address to those in Athens, to the Areopagus. Their worship of the unknown God, showing their religiosity, could be answered in the one true God. That brings us to today. What about the gospel? Let's take some time to review a summary of the gospel, which I hope is helpful to you as you think about your own personal witness. And I use that word summary very intentionally. I don't want to imply that we can reduce the, the, the Bible's message to a few propositional statements. Or that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Luke and John, the gospel writers, were wasting time writing 16 up to 28 chapters when we could just give it in a few bullet points. 
Or that Paul, what he said in Acts chapter 17, was, was taking too long. He could have just said one, two, three, four. No, this is a gospel summary because if we understand it, the Bible in its totality from Genesis to Revelation actually is the gospel story. We're at our best when we can present a summary and then invite people to investigate the gospel for themselves in the scriptures, alone, in a group, in a church setting, and the like. Here they are, God, man, Christ's response. We've talked about this before, God. God created each of us in his image, we're each loved by him, and we're each accountable to him. That's crucial as we see today. Man, humanity. Each of us and all of us have rebelled against that God, and because of that sin, we stand already under his judgment. God, man, Christ. Through Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, God has intervened in our desperate plight, and he offers us salvation, forgiveness of sin, new life, a gift of the Spirit, among other things. Finally, response. This great news demands a response. And the only appropriate response is that of repentance, a turning from our dead-end ways, and trust, faith in Jesus Christ for what he's already done for us. God, man, Christ's response. Four pegs or four uh, dots, we might say, that connect the gospel story. It's our tendency, I might observe, to leave out the first and the last of those. Often in our gospel summary or presentation, we major on our sin before a holy God and the gift of God in Jesus Christ. But those don't make all the sense they should unless we first introduce who God is. We're made in his image and accountable to him and the necessity, the imperative of response. We can't say, interesting gift, God. Thanks. We all are called to respond, and a no response is a response in and of itself. Second thing, or third, I should, or third thing I should say, and that is, what, what is a helpful way to gauge our effectiveness, our fruitfulness. We looked at this several weeks ago. According to Mark Middleberg in his good book from 20-some years ago, uh, Becoming a Contagious Christian, he, he put together a little formula that helps us assess. MI equals HP plus CP plus CC. Maximum impact is high potency plus close proximity plus clear communication. High potency has to do with the quality of our lives. Do our lives, does my life look more and more like Jesus Christ in obedience to the Lord, full of integrity, intrigue to onlookers? How we live is hugely influential in our gospel witness. CP, close proximity. That has to do with the, the level of interaction, relationships that we have with unbelievers. Are we proactively, regularly rubbing shoulders with those who do not yet know Christ? You know, whether we're isolated from them or deeply engaged with them, that's hugely important for our witness. CC, clear communication. Has to do with our capacity, our capability, sometimes through practice, through learning, training, to summarize the gospel message and to invite people to examine the biblical story for themselves. Can we, can you present the gospel with clarity, and with confidence. 
That's quite vital in our witness. When each of these elements is there, high potency, quality of life, close proximity, rubbing shoulders with unbelievers, clear communication that we can present the gospel story, then God has a way of, of maximum impact, fruitfulness, as a result of our faithfulness. You see, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're not only included in his family, we're also called to his mission. We become his ambassadors in the world. In fact, Jesus said this at the beginning of this book, Acts. He told his first followers, just as he would tell us, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. It's not just what you do, it's who you are. In Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And by the way, we find ourselves there. And then Paul, one of Jesus' first followers, gives us the posture for our witness. He describes it in 1 Corinthians 9. We saw this a couple weeks ago. Paul said, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Do you think Paul took this seriously? Paul said, I will give my life, I will do whatever it takes so that people hear who Jesus is. The onus, Paul would say, is on us as Christ's ambassadors, not just to go to them, but to think with them as we proclaim the gospel to them. Paul Copan says, we cannot expect unbelievers to first learn our ideas so that they can understand us. We need to go to them to learn what they think, find ways to present them with the truths of the gospel in ways that will be meaningful to them. It's not about getting them on our turf. It's mostly about us getting on their turf and thinking with them, who is God and what do I do with Jesus? Today we come to the second of four elements of Paul's address. Last week we looked at the first, the reality of religion, that human beings are by nature religious. Today... We look at the nature of God. Who is this divine being to whom we respond? Next week, the purpose of history. What's going on in the world from God's perspective? And finally, in two weeks, the necessity of salvation. Religion, God, history, salvation. Four elements of Paul's presentation of the gospel to those who did not know Jesus. Today, second of those pillars, the nature of God. And we learn from Paul that this pillar is vital for our witness because understanding the nature of God is central to the gospel. Point one in your outline, understanding the nature of God is central to the gospel. What is God like? That's one of the central questions of life. It's true for agnostics, for people who claim a formal religion, for people who go to church regularly, for people who profess to follow Jesus Christ. It's true for you and me. What is God like? A.W. Tozer, in his classic little book, The Knowledge of the Holy, a kind of primer on who God is, says this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most important fact about any person is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he deep in his heart conceives God to be like. That's the fundamental question of human existence. The, the question that ought to keep us up at night, that ought to accompany, 
accompany us during the day that, that ought to beg for answers. What is God like? It reminds me of the, the story of the foreigner who was visiting Ireland. And, and, and he was trying to make sense of this religious conflict that was going on in Ireland between Sinn Féin and the Ulster Unionists. And upon meeting one man, an Irishman, the foreigner asked him about his religious identity. And the man said that he had none. So the visitor asked what he believed. And the Irishman replied, I don't. I'm an atheist. After several more repeated questions, the visitor was not content and became exasperated and finally exclaimed, that's fine, but are you a Catholic atheist or a Protestant atheist? <laughs> See, we're prone as people to identify ourselves with a formal religion because by doing so, we can end the conversation. Has that ever happened to you? I'm such and such, thanks End of discussion. But the Irishman really had it right there. What matters is what he believes or doesn't about God. Reminded of the, the, the story that the author and, and thinker C.S. Lewis tells, the, the person who declared to him again and again that he was an atheist. And C.S. Lewis, compassionate of heart, said to him, tell me about the God that you don't believe in. I probably don't believe in him either. See, for most atheists, it's not that they've conclusively determined that no divine being exists. It's that the caricature about the Christian God, the God of the Bible, has been marred by their experience, and therefore they have rejected him. What we believe about God sets the trajectory for all that we say and do in life. It's like the launch of a rocket. In the first few seconds, it looks like it's on track. But if it's off at all, given time, given distance, it will be far from where it's supposed to go. When our understanding of God is distorted, the answers that we embrace, the course of our life will gradually drift away. That's why Paul spends so much of his time, verses 24 and 5 here, verses 28 and 9 as well, highlighting the nature of God as essential to the gospel because the, the people in Athens had to understand who he was in order to adequately respond to him. If he's the one to whom we owe our being, to whom we must give an account, then we have to understand who he is. And that's all part of the gospel. It's an indispensable element of our proclamation. The life, the ministry of Jesus Christ can only be understood in the context of what the Bible says about who God is. Which is why when we present the gospel to people who don't have an accurate understanding of God, we must begin there. John Stodd, another Englishman, said we learn from Paul here that we cannot preach the gospel of Jesus without the doctrine of God or the cross without creation, or salvation without judgment. The one precedes the other. They fit together. He reminds us that, that many people today are rejecting the gospel not because they think it's false, but because they think it's trivial, that it doesn't matter. A few years back, I was uh, in the audience with about 50 college students. It was a an interreligious 
dialogue panel. And as is typical in those settings, the goal is often totally unclear to anyone. On this panel of experts, there was a Jewish rabbi, there was a Buddhist monk, there was an Islamic imam, and there was a Lutheran pastor. And each one of them was to present their faith in an attractive, factual way. So the Jewish rabbi provided information about ritual and celebration. The Buddhist monk talked about peace and happiness. The, the imam talked about justice and morality. And then came Christianity, and it was shocking. The presenter described a Christian faith that was foreign to me. It went something like this, you're okay, I'm okay. We just want to accept everyone, we want to welcome them, we want to be kind to children, and we want to love our neighbor, and isn't God so likable? I mean, God sounded like the stereotype of a grandfather, happy, homely, harmless. He was so tame that that God could disappear and no one would even know the difference. And I wondered, is that the God of the Bible? Because that God was perfectly forgettable. So if our understanding of God's nature is so critical, if, if our perception tends to be so distorted, what is it that people need to understand? And for Paul in Athens, he had something specific in mind. Point two in your outline, the transcendence and eminence of God is crucial to our understanding. Now, transcendence and eminence aren't words that we typically use in our everyday vocabulary. So we need to describe, define them. Transcendence means that God is completely independent of his creation and beyond the creation in his being. We have biblical words that talk about that. We, we speak of God's sovereignty, the fact that he's all-powerful, omnipotent. He's holy, he's all-knowing. These all point to the transcendence of God. And most people in most of history have conceived of God as utterly transcendent. Most especially in the monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. God is wholly other. We, we cannot domesticate God. We cannot control God. His creatures, his creation cannot suppress or tame him. But even uh, more people would believe that. In animistic religions, they, they often believe in a number of different spiritual beings. Angels, demons, spirits, and the like. But usually at the top of that spiritual food chain is an ultimate God. A divine being above all the other spiritual beings. The Greeks, for instance, had Zeus. In classic Judaism, God is so other that his name, Yahweh, was not even allowed to be pronounced. They came up, came up with other names, Jehovah or Adonai, to say as verbal placeholders instead of Yahweh. People would melt in the presence of the biblical God. Moses came down from the mountain radiant, glowing, as people saw him. People recognize you don't trifle with God. People recognize that you don't ignore God. You don't disobey God. God is transcendent. The Bible says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways, God says, higher than your ways. My thoughts higher than your thoughts. God is transcendent. But God, thank goodness, is not only transcendent. The Bible also presents God as imminent. 
Imminence means that God is present in the creation, in the material universe, that God is accessible to the creatures. We speak of God as being all present, being just and merciful and compassionate. And these things point to the imminence of God. In Christ, all things hold together. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God's imminence means that that he can be worshipped and feared, but not only that. God can be known, he can be sensed, he can be enjoyed, he can be loved. God condescends to us, he stoops to our level so that we can love him in response. How cool is that? God's grace comes to us and it awakens our dead hearts so that we can respond in love and worship to him. He is a God who has come to us full of grace and truth. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, the only begotten, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. In that verse we see the transcendence and the eminence of God. Paul doubles down on that here in Athens. That God is transcendent and eminent. That God cares about his creation and is actively involved in it. And that is a shocking discovery for people in our world. The problem for us in the modern West, in North America, Europe, a few other places, is that we have come to conceive of God as solely imminent. God has become our buddy. He's become our self-actualizer. He's become the cosmic cheerleader. He's become our gullible grandfather. God only sees the good in us, we think, and he gives us whatever we want. God has somehow lost his awesomeness, his role as judge, his holiness, his otherness. And so we wonder whether in jest or true curiosity, what if God were just like us. Joan Osborne, several decades ago, wrote the song, What If God Were One of Us? If God had a name, what would it be, and would you call it to his face? And if you were faced with him in all his glory, what would you ask if you had just one question? Yeah, yeah, God is great. Yeah, yeah, God is good. You know the song. And what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home? But that's not the real God. That's not the one true God. God cannot be domesticated. We can't train God to do our bidding. And Paul wants the people of Athens and the people across the planet to know that about God. God is way bigger than we think. We see here in these verses why that's the case. God is far more independent, far more self-sufficient than we tend to believe. And he makes his point, Paul does, in a handful of ways. Verse 24, the beginning, God is the creator and the sustainer. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Look at the foundation here that Paul is building. God 
made the world. That's the point of Genesis 1 and 2. We get lost in all kinds of questions without understanding the foundational point, which is that God made the world. And any theory of origins that misses the fact that God made the world by his command is in grave error. Paul affirms that without any hesitation. God is the personal creator of everything that is, and he's the personal Lord of everything he's made. So it's crazy, it's absurd to build shrines or temples as if God lives in them. God sustains life, all that he's created, including human beings. So it's crazy, it's absurd to think that the one who sustains life needs to be sustained by us. That we should supply his needs. The old theologians called this the aseity of God. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Aseity. God is not only self-existent, he's utterly independent. God does not need us. We are greatly, fully dependent upon him. Let's put it in philosophical terms. Maybe you've heard these phrases. God is not a deist. God's not that blind watchmaker, you know that term, who, who created the world, wound up the clock, and then went away on an eternal vacation. God's not a deist, he's a theist. He created the cosmos, that's true, but he remains actively involved in all that happens in our world, including everything that happens in your life. Do you believe that? He knows the hairs on your head, the days of your life, and every circumstance. He sees it, he knows it, he oversees it. We are not alone. Which means we ought to be careful how we live. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you touch, eyes, what you see, feet where you go, the song says. The Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful how you live. He's not just the creator from times past. He's the Lord of time present. And that's important. That's critical when we present the gospel. People need to know who God really is according to the Bible. Not how they want him to be. We as human beings have this tendency to want to create God in our own image, don't we? But God can't be remade. God can't be fashioned to our liking. We are accountable to him and we will be judged by him. And that's part of the gospel. Ambassadors don't get to change the message. We're to deliver what's been given to us. And at some point in all of our evangelistic conversations and relationships, we have to get to the point where we let the Bible challenge what people conceive God to be like. And we present to them something way more glorious and coherent and consistent and true. End of verse 24 of Acts 17, God cannot be defined or confined by our religiosity. He does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if God needed anything. Paul would say that is laughable. It'd be pointless to preach Jesus as Lord if he were merely thought of as an addition to an already crowded pantheon. If Jesus was one more God for you in your shrine, it would make no sense. 
The significance of Jesus is wholly dependent on, on him being a manifestation of the one true God. God's not a product of our ingenuity. He's not the recipient of our pas- uh, compassion. God's not like one of our children, and we say this about them all the time, oh, how cute, and they need us too. New parents say that for about two weeks and enjoy it. Then we spend the rest of our lives trying to create a level of independence with our children. Paul, in a nutshell, is warning the Athenians about idolatry. He's saying if the shoe fits, wear it. And it fits. He says they have domesticated divinity. And Paul warns them about the foolishness of that. They, like us, are prone to idolatry, to counterfeit gods. The human heart is an idol factory. Tim Keller says that eloquently in a book that I would highly recommend, Counterfeit Gods. Florent Verac referred to that several weeks ago. The human heart takes good things and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them. They make them like God as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety, and fulfillment if we attain them. That's the nature of idols. They overpromise and they cannot deliver. Some of you know the name John Stone Street, the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. A few weeks ago, in a little blog that he posted, he talked about four idols, counterfeit gods, that dominate our culture. They're all S's. Science, state, sex, and stuff. Science, the worship of knowledge. And the power that we give to science to determine what is true and only what is true. The state. Our our obsession with power and the ability, sometimes even through the government, to force others to conform to our authority. Sex, the worship of our bodies. The physical satisfaction that comes from unrestricted sexual license. That no one can limit what we can do as we worship our bodies. Stuff, a colloquial way of saying material things, possessions. An obsession with them that gives us value and prominence. Science, state, sex, and stuff. A great summary of American idols that suppress our lives. Paul says, those aren't the one true God, and we are far more dependent and needy than we tend to believe. Fourth point in your outline, we're far more dependent and needy than we tend to believe. Verse 25, at the end, rather he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God is completely self-sufficient. God doesn't need us. God's perfectly capable of caring for himself. God didn't create us because he was unfulfilled or or unsatisfied or incapable or incomplete. God existed from the beginning as a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, and has always been at perfect harmony with himself. He's saying, I have created and you are the creatures. He says, Athenians, get over yourselves. He says, Americans, get over yourselves. Without God, we can't exist. We're also contingent beings. Look at verse 28. 
For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Contingency means that we're unable to function or survive on our own. Think of a a baby in utero with the umbilical cord. We're utterly reliant on something, someone else, for our survival. And Paul says here, human beings are dependent upon God himself. Why? Because we're made by him and for him. A few of you are old enough to remember the old phrase, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. In creation terms, it's true that God is the father of all humanity. We're all his offspring. We're his creatures. We receive life from him. Every person, even the vilest in history, were made in God's image. But in salvation terms, God is the father only of those in Christ. And we are his children only by adoption and his grace. Let me put it concisely. We are all God's creatures, but only those in Christ are God's children. And remarkably here, Paul quotes two pagan poets to make his case. First one there about being, uh, living and moving and having our being in him comes from six centuries beforehand, the the poet Epimenides, who who wrote other things, some of which were inaccurate and, and downright amusing. But this was true. Paul believed that all truth is God's truth, and if a pagan person said it, he could use it to buttress his argument about God. The other one is the Stoic author Aratus from three centuries before. And the Stoics who were listening to Paul at this speech probably thought, eh, now you're warming up, Paul. Now you're using people that we think highly of. Paul is a master at getting into their context and using those that they esteemed against what they actually believed. He consistently endeavors to have as much common ground as possible with his audience, while at the same time is undermining their own position. Brilliant and an example to us. See, Paul didn't refuse to to quote pagan unbelievers here and there to defend and to spread the gospel. He knew their teaching. He knew what people believed. And if Paul could do it, so can we. As long as we're putting those things in proper context, as long as we're exposing error when they say it or building a bridge so that we can present the truth of God's word. There are nuggets of truth that come from the lips of those who don't know God. So Paul found what he could agree with, and he used those as stepping stones to get to the gospel. See, he knows his context. He understands the people. He can relate with them on their terms and speak to them of Jesus Christ. What is most important is to faithfully proclaim the gospel. We can find points of contact with our audience, as Jeet Fernando says, and we should use those, but the gospel is always what's primary. Paul ends here where he begins. He circles back in verse 29 to say that God can't be crafted by our design. We are crafted by his design. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. One translation says, formed by human art and imagination. 
the making, the worship of idols makes no sense now that we know who God really is. However enthralled we are by what we make and what we serve, God is not enthralled. God is disgusted. It's an abomination to him, our idols. Paul here observed the religious devotion of the people of Athens. Paul engaged them in dialogue. Paul came alongside of them and spoke in we language as they together observed the truth. But Paul never shrank back from highlighting how different, how other, how unlike God is compared to them and to him and to us. And until a person realizes that, who God is, they will never see, they will never receive a savior. There's no reason to. Without grasping the nature of God, the gospel will remain irrelevant or foolish. Paul knew that the gospel of Jesus hinges on an accurate understanding of God. And as we consider who God is and present him to others, our presentation hinges on that too. It matters who God is and it matters what we think of that God as we live and as we speak the gospel. Let's pray. God, these are sobering words because they tell us things about ourselves that we're not always comfortable with. Deep in our hearts, this side of the fall, we'd like to be God. We'd like to determine the way things are and how we live and what we do with others' lives. But we're not God, and life reminds us of that again and again. Circumstances are beyond our control. Suffering is a part of our life. And we recognize again and again that we need you. Thank you that you're a God who comes to us not just as just and holy, but a God who comes in love and mercy so that we might know the one who made us and in humility respond with joy and satisfaction in finding the one who made us. Thank you, God, that you are the gospel and that as you gave your son, you showed us who you were like. Help us as your creatures to respond in exaltation to who you are, to who we are, and to what we receive in you. Thank you for the person of Jesus Christ. Oh God, be our delight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.